Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have an amazing founder. You know, we're going to be learning all the good stuff and hearing all the good stuff that we like to hear around, you know, building, scaling, financing, all of that good stuff. You know, on the show today, actually, we're going to be really diving in, you know, into some of the lessons, you know, that our founder that we're going to be speaking with today, you know, that he learned during the journey of raising money. Also, you know, what were what 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 has been some of the value that he has experienced from his investors in addition to just the money, as well as what has been the process itself like, uh, how you know he did it and with his team and and what it looked like from point A to point C, as well as obviously when you raise money, it comes with expectations and people are gonna want to sit on your board. So how those dynamics, you know, really play out as well. So again, very inspiring what we have ahead of us. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Curtis Anderson. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alejandro. Great to be with you. Excited to have a conversation today. So born in Southern Idaho, you know, in a farmer town there. How was life growing up? Um, it was uh, it was idyllic, Alejandro. I I loved uh, I loved growing up in a small a small farming town. I certainly. Um, certainly wasn't a great fit for it as as career has panned out, but I uh, I would not have traded uh, my youth there for anything. A, uh, an exceptional community. Uh, my parents and grandparents all all worked for themselves and were respectively entrepreneurs. Uh, I I worked with them from a young age, and uh, work work is a key part of how you thrive in a small a small community, especially a small farming community. Um, relationships really matter uh, in in uh, a small volume. There, um, being good for your word, following through, those kinds of things uh, are are really important. And uh, I summarize some of those lessons with a few with a few highlights. I think that I, I learned how to work, and and more than learned how to work, I learned to love work. Um, the value of making the world a, a little bit better, or um, creating something is just uh, it's just an exceptional part of of that time period and then um, just making sure that you under promise and over deliver uh, my dad ran his own business for 30 years and um, I remember he bought, he bought one yellow page ad the second year of his operations and the whole process frustrated him because it didn't it didn't allow uh, for him to display or to showcase um, the the quality of the work. And so he never purchased a, a yellow page ad again. Um, ran for the the last twenty eight years before selling, uh, all on word of mouth, and uh, that's a pretty exceptional story. It it still makes me chuckle as I talk to him about it today. Um, but but it it was very material. The the work that he did and the quality of that work um, carried like a megaphone. Uh, it can seem like a simple overture on the on the surface, but Though those two have been really valuable uh, in my life up to this point, I mean, to to this day, I think my brother is probably the only person I worry about outworking me, and um, I just have have it sustained and created so many uh, great working relationships with folks that 
where I was always committed to and driven by the idea that I needed to deliver more value than than what I committed to up front. Um, it certainly certainly has carried uh, a, a great deal of of influence in how how we have built and sustained NERSA, uh, as well as anything else that I've done. Now, the church has seen, had um, a big uh, pivotal moment with you since the very, very beginning, you know, in your journey professionally and personally. And, and one of the things that you did actually was uh, you went to Toronto, you know, as part of uh, the involvement. So, so tell us about this experience, too. Absolutely. Um, I served a, a two-year uh, service-based uh, mission for my church. Uh, and the basic idea, many people will be familiar with uh, missionaries from, from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but uh, you spend two years uh, focused uh, outward. So you're, you're helping other people um, find, find roots and, and faith-based uh, enablement for, for their life. Um, and, and that's a, it's a much different experience than, than starting college at that same age or going through some of the programs, uh, being in internally focused, uh, and that, uh, that outward focus in helping others certainly has helped me identify more fully, uh, a number of areas where, where I derive value. I, um, I, I find a, just a, a rich, a rich sense of, of purpose from from helping others solve problems, and that's a theme that certainly has had had other illustrations in my love for technology and um, our our pursuit of putting a bet a nurse at the bedside of every patient in need in healthcare. Um, I love I love mission and and purpose uh, fulfillment, uh, and and that was a key part. My time in Toronto was a key part of that. Um, it also that time period also helped me appreciate um, the value of diversity of thought. Um, you know, I had grown up in this small Idaho town and you land in Toronto, which is one of the most diverse cities in Canada. Um, and I just got a, a whole a whole wheelbarrow of, of joy as I started to experience uh, different cultures and, and how, how different people lived. Um, food, uh, was a key part of that, but but dress and culture and a way of life was was also certainly valuable. Um, it gave me a a great a great illustration for the rich tapestry of experience that the broader world offered, and certainly set my curiosity on fire. So you eventually went to Utah for um, the studies, uh, and then after that you went into the entertainment space. So how do you? Make that transition from the entertainment, you know, space, you know, where you spend, you know, about four years or such, and then you are like, maybe I want to make a switch here on on career paths. Yeah. So, so the story actually, these notes actually start much earlier. I, um, my mother was a teacher, and growing up, she would always ensure that our Christmas gifts had some kind of an educational focus. And one of the best gifts that I received as a kid was a hardcover copy of. Uh, a book called The Way Things Work uh, by David McCulley. Uh, and it's got these animated scenes of cavemen and woolly mammoths to help you understand how fulcrums and levers and basic physic, physics principles work. Um, it, was, it was an approachable introduction for me to science, um, but also generally helped fuel in me a, 
uh, a recognition of of seeing the world um, curiously, um, just trying to to double click and better understand, and that um, that there was no process that was unapproachable or or something that you couldn't understand. And so, after I got that book, the year afterward, I started drawing animations to mimic the process that's outlined in the book for more complex things. And um, as an example, I I put together this five page drawing that outlined the factory process on how to make an Oreo. I was just, I was really astounded that every one of them looks exactly the same. And, and my mom, my mom kept the drawing and I have it now buried in a trunk in my basement. But, but that was, that was one of my earliest evidences that, that I was going to be interested in the world around me and how it worked um, and certainly helped fuel that. My dad had a, um, an HP 86 that he used to handle his books and finances. He'd print out his invoices and checks on this old Oki data printer. And that was the first place that I got curious about how technology could help a, a process. Um, my dad would hit these keys and it would go into the box and then this physical process would happen. And translating that was, uh, was really one of the earliest illustrations where um, technology was going to be a key part of of how I could do that in the future. Um, I built my first machine computer at, at age 12 and then worked all four years through high school in my IT, the district IT department, um, where I started to un- unpack and understand better um, how networks worked and web design, some of the key parts of of an animation and an, uh, a film process worked, and, and what uh, what role technology was playing in accelerating um, storytelling in that respect. Um, it really gave me a solid understanding of what technology as a noun could be. And then shortly after after high school, and my mission and starting to play around, continuing to play around with tech, but starting to play around with the internet as a verb, uh, that was where I started to realize that the internet uh, had the capacity to to certainly change and alter the world that we lived in, and um, there were a lot of different ways that I was interested in doing that. I I remember using on my dad's HP eighty six. I would I would use MS DOS, and I I hated that interface. And the first time we got a machine that had Windows ninety five on it was this incredible moment of of just understanding that there were going to be better ways to interact. And, and I thought that, you know, in, in film, there would certainly be uh, valuable ways in which you could leverage technology to, to tell better stories. And so worked, um, worked for five, five and a half, six years in that respect and, and on those processes and making storytelling better. Um, And then, and then I ran into um, data visualization and and the idea of having um, a real story, a business's story that you could tell through the lens of the information which it created was really magnificent for me. Um, I was I, I had grown to love documentary filmmaking and this felt like a a really great way to have a confluence of all all of these ideas and so I started playing around with. Um, fancy pie charts, as as I like to call them now, and building out uh, building out fancy pie charts for businesses uh, to better understand where they were and where they could be with small and 
additional changes, um, that that swung the pendulum uh, way back into the the world of of fairly uh, focused uh, tech. Um, and I started I started to play around with platforms that that could deliver better information, uh, and and started my own shop. Um, it was certainly a a valuable part of of my process because outside of the love of work, one of the biggest lessons I had taken from watching my my parents was that um, everyone can do more with more, but only the scrappiest and most successful people can do more with less. And so this idea of of Moneyball or magnifying your use of information to drive better operational output uh, became a, a key part of the way that I, I thought about things. And I just, I was enamored with the idea that every business owner could could be in a better driver's seat by leveraging these tools. Um, I knew that, that tech could continue to help them solve problems and that data-driven tech uh, was a very scary prospect. Uh, and so, so much of, of leaving to start my own shop was the desire to find a problem that I could help others solve with technology, but more fully with data-driven technology. Um, and I had, I had met a guy uh, during my time in Toronto who, who was 97 at the time. And, and every time we would see him, he would say, Curtis, you uh, everybody's good for something, even if it's just a bad example, because even at that point you've added value. And, and I loved, I loved this man's optimism at 97 years old to have a, a frame of reference or to see the world through, through that, uh, that kind of bright eyes that just you, at a, at a very worst, you were just going to be a bad example for somebody else and startup land, you know, running your own thing, building your own, your own company felt like an incredible batting cage to put that that philosophy to work. You know, we're all we're all writing our own story and and the note is that if you don't like where this chapter ends, then you just don't stop writing. You just you've got to move forward and keep trying something else. And so we built solutions um at that during that period I, I helped build solutions for for retail and for um, for for corporate banking, for private banking, uh, also built some fancy pie chart solutions for uh, for healthcare for a segment of healthcare, and I knew I knew that healthcare was behind, um, and I learned a lot through these problems in retail and banking and these other aspects of healthcare, and so I, I knew there was additional opportunity to help make healthcare better, uh, and. Uh, and so when I, I got shown the, um, the nurse staffing agency that I ended up purchasing, I was incredibly curious uh, and, and wanted to, to double click and learn more. Walk us through this decision of buying this nurse staffing agency and then you being able to see like some of the issues, you know, in the space and then thinking, hey, I'm going to, you know, kind of like cover some of these holes and, and really implement technology uh, to make it efficient. And that as a result of that, like, what was that incubation process for you to really bring NURSA to life? Walk us through those sequences of events. Yeah, absolutely. The, the agency that I looked at, there were really two, two things that drove my curiosity initially. Um, I knew that healthcare needed more help from a digital tools front. Uh, and the agency that, 
um, that landed on my desk that I had found um, was had grown for seven years year over year on a hundred percent revenue increase uh, every year, and so it felt like a really uh, safe place to try to put some of these concepts to work. And uh, I was curious. I I drove up and went to the the headquarters, and they had this whiteboard uh, with sticky notes on either side, green and orange. And, and on the one side was nurses' names, names of nurses who wanted to go to work. And on the other side was facilities, uh, facility names of those who needed nursing help. Um, the guy running the place at the time had been a medical sales rep or earlier in his career. And, and he walks up to the whiteboard and says, Curtis, making money in, in this business is as easy as taking a sticky note from this side and putting it together with a sticky note on this other side in the middle of the whiteboard. And, and as he's going through this process and unpacking for me that that is literally how they were making operational decisions, um, I, I had the thought, if, I, if I'm half of what my mother thinks I am, I, I, can, I can automate something here. There's, there is something that, that we can do to help. And so I, I knew there would be an opportunity to add immense impact. And um, and so then, then came the process of, you know, I got to understand the business and I've got to pull the financing together. Uh, the, the first company that I had started was really a, you know, bootstrapped. Uh, it was my, my savings that had driven that, that consulting shop. And um, so this was different. You, you're, you're going to put together some kind of financing or some portion of it is going to be financed. And so uh, working with banks from the front side rather than helping them on on the back end, but working through that process, you start to understand what's important to them. And um, the the summary there is: you want to make it as risk averse of a decision as you possibly can. You want to de-risk every aspect of this for them uh, to to find a great partner to be able to facilitate and support you. Um, there were incredible options available at the time through some some SBA programs uh, that we looked at and and thought through and uh, ended up using uh, an SBA 7A note to to fund a portion of this and then uh, put uh, put an ample amount uh, of the purchase price down um, I I saved about 35 percent of my available cash to be able to hire an operator and and then facilitate the business as it grew. So there was certainly some strategy in that respect. Uh, and then I, I set about researching every piece of tech in the space. So what, what was helping agencies? What was working against the agencies? Why were the agencies both a solution and a problem? And uh, spent seven and a half, eight months uh, working through that while, while I started to, to build a philosophy or a a position that I could hold confidently about where I thought technology could drive the space moving forward. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone it's super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then I guess for the people that uh, that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model of Nursa? How are you guys making money? Historically, uh, it helps to understand how agencies worked to see the benefit of Nursa. Agencies uh, are part of a broader subset of uh, of, a, of layers that separate the nurse who wants to work from the manager who needs help in in the facility, and that that layer, those layers become an adult game of telephone. There's six, seven, sometimes as much as eight people who fill those those layers. The agency is one of those, and so. What became clear early on while we were while we were working uh, the agency was this idea that we weren't directly connecting the two parties and that transparency of information of what the facility manager needed and how the nurse wanted to go to work uh, were getting uh, convoluted in in the middle. Um, there was an ample margin. Uh, a, a considerable percentage that gets taken out by each of those parties. And so the one of the first takeaways was the idea that if we could directly connect these two people, it would be much easier for them to work together. And the internet offers us a solution to in order to do that. And so the, the first idea of NERSA was just what happens if we disintermediate all of all of these parties and put these two people together. The second piece was that because an agency is uh, manually driven, it's fueled by uh, a human team, what you end up with is you, you want to incentivize those sales reps or uh, any of your agency team members to create the, the largest amount of guaranteed revenue possible. The way that that usually translates out is that the agency is looking to solve as many uh, Nurse Nancy is leaving on maternity leave problems as they can. This is a longer term, you know, 10 to 16 weeks uh, is what they want in a guaranteed revenue. It makes it hard to incentivize to solve problems that are smaller. So Nurse Nancy is sick and I need to fill 12 hours of her time tomorrow. Um, Solving for 12 hours is very difficult when you're incentivizing for 12 weeks. Uh, and so we would see at the agency, we would see all of these 12-hour needs come in 
that were just literally not worth anyone's time because there's been a, a nursing shortage of sorts, uh, some variant of that problem for several decades now. And so there was constantly a stream of longer term engagements. Um, what, what that helped me realize was that technology might be the only solution that could efficiently and effectively solve for the shorter term needs. It was also substantially uh, a substantially harder problem to solve. And so for me, on the idea of under-promise and over-deliver and just generally the love of work, those lessons came back into play because if we couldn't solve the 12-hour problem, there really was no value in chasing upstream needs or, or going to solve that. And so we built out layers of the technology in succession that allowed us to test how quickly we could put those parties together. Fortunately for us, we were running those tests all the way through 2019. And we spun NURSA out as its own company at that point because the tests were showing, um, showing great success and then started, uh, started operating as a separate entity in 2020. So the fact that, that NURSA finishes its first full year in 2019, and then begins with a public-facing front in 2020 of its own, um, the timing just couldn't have been better. We were certainly the benefactors of Providence in that respect. And as you guys say, thinking about tool financing the operation, um, you know, how do you guys go about that? How, how much, I guess, you know, before anything, how much capital have you guys raised to date for NURSA? Yeah, so working backwards on that, Alejandro, uh, total to date, we've raised $108 million uh, through three rounds, a seed, a Series A, and a Series B. Um, and we also operated uh, net income profitably in 2021 and in 2022. And so part of um, solving the problem in a material way, uh, in a real way, uh, part of that is demonstrating that the business could uh, could make sense on its own financially, uh, that it, it could carry itself. Um, and so because we had started the problem pre-COVID pandemic, we knew that there were longer term issues and, and have, uh, have aimed to have a strategic focus on the future since the start. Um, I think that's a really valuable lesson that, that I have gleaned from this time is that you should aim to solve a problem that has material impact. Um, there are lots of, of ways to, uh, to, to make a quick buck, but, but finding problems that have long-term impact gives you the greatest uh, potential uh, to actually solve the problem uh, in, you know, as funding environments are volatile and certainly different business models come and go, um, Finding, finding a problem that has sustainability over, over a longer term uh, has certainly proven valuable in the opportunity that we have to solve that problem conclusively. So then, so then when it comes to raising money too, what have you learned about running an effective process? Because I mean, you guys have done, you know, a few rounds here. So as you were alluding to, so running an effective process, what have you learned about that? Process can be brutal. One of the first... Uh, one of the first pitches that I stepped into, um, having never had experience with with venture, um, the individual who I was pitching uh, fell asleep in in the second slide um, of the presentation, and 
Um, I'm certain that uh, they are a, a good person and just needed a nap. But but as as I stood there, I thought, you know, what do you what do you do with this opportunity? Um, and so uh, I needed the practice. I finished the pitch uh, and and went through that. Um, finding finding people that that experience caused me to rethink who who we should be talking to and how we should be talking to them and and really built a, a foundational rule for me. Um, the the people who fund should always have a clear intersection with the space in which you are solving problems. Um, if you can find people who have either operational or previous financial experience solving problems in the space that you are in, it makes a material difference. Um, second thing for us, I knew that COVID was becoming a wave at, at the, fr the front end of 2020. We didn't know how much of a tsunami it would be. And, and so there was a question about, as we're raising money, we knew the problem existed before. I knew the problem would exist after COVID was gone in some degree or another. But, but we, we wanted to temper for financial partners who had longevity, who were interested and could demonstrate in as many cases as we could possibly scrounge up that they had made investments that were longer term, not three to five years, five to seven to 10 years. And the ask that I would have of financial partners was to help me understand how many deals they had done in which they had been involved with the deal for at least a decade. That became a, a foundational piece of how we would run a process uh, as well. Um, and then, and then the third was there needed to be some aspect of their involvement that was money plus. There are lots of ways to get money in the world, and so you need to find partners that you can work with on a on a personal level, but also on a strategic level that they could add some additional value beyond beyond the check that they would write. Um, we've been incredibly grateful for the partnerships that we created. And in all three rounds, those three staples became uh, pillars on which uh, on which we built the deals. And then what about, obviously, when, when they give you the money, they want to sit on your board and uh, provide value. So what have you seen around board dynamics and then also being able to extract that value in an impactful way for NURSA? Yeah, absolutely. The, the board value uh, probably for me has has rolled up to two two particular takeaways number number one um, macro understanding so when you're building a business you're uh, you're flying the plane as you build it you've got um, in our case there was a a period um, of aggressive growth where we were doing north of 75 percent month over month and that um, that compounded for more than more than a year and a half um, during the midst of the pandemic and um, has has had a real impact on how we operated. But because we were so focused on solving the next problem or putting out the brightest burning fire uh, on the building, we we couldn't always get our eyes up to see what else was happening in the in the our space and in the space around us. Um, a board, uh, a well-orchestrated board, has the capacity 
to give you better perspective and vision uh, than you have to to you are able to get on your own. Um, having bootstrapped something, built a debt deal to to buy a business, and now experienced venture what it's like to work with venture capital. Um, it's a major win for venture. This this aspect of it, helping you have vision of what else is happening. Uh, there's just no better way to get that than than through the right venture partner uh, who has experience with with your space. The second the second takeaway for me in the value of a board um, is providing you with the right kind of pushback. Um, you can find pundits and people who are excited to tell you why you will fail everywhere, but you can't find partners who are willing. Uh, to work with you in discussion about what happens next and challenge the ways in which you see the future, uh, knowing that they are are yoked with you at the hip. Uh, and so that degree of partnership has certainly been valuable in how we've constructed the board today. And, and truth be told, we, we have a long ways to go on, on how that board shapes out. By, by most accounts, we, we're a at most, a, an awkward teenager moving through a, an operational period of, of go-to-market at this point. And so there, there is a ton of that value that we'll continue to extract and, and help create in how the board shapes up at NERSA in the future. So as you're thinking about people here, no? because we're talking about the board, we're talking about investors, you know, whatever that is, you know, employees. When it comes to people, there's one thing that really makes them excited and aligned into ultimately the future that you guys are living, you know, into with NURSA. So if you were to go to sleep tonight, Curtis, and you wake up in a world where the vision of NURSA is fully realized, what, what does that world look like? Absolutely. What's exciting about the future of healthcare is that there's an incredible amount of potential left. NURSA sits at, at what I believe um, can be the crux of of a better model of care uh, in the future. Um, not only uh, not only do we have the opportunity uh, to continue to create a better delivery of of healthcare logistics, so operationally, but I think the data that we are seeing can help drive a better understanding for healthcare facilities everywhere. In, in how they work and operate in the future. Um, for, for the last 50 years, there have been multiple parties between the nurse and the manager who has the need. And for the first time since a, in the last at least 50 years, we, we have uh, one, one company that can see both sides of that. We can see a labor market moving in real time inside a software shell. That that can become a ubiquitous foundation on which everyone else can build. And so having the vision realized would, would mean that um, we do work today and in a real-time capacity, someone gets better care tomorrow because, because we existed to help uh, be the digital switch switchboard that drives those connections. Um, what what that could do for for healthcare in a country that you know nineteen percent of our GDP is spent on healthcare, um, and our 
you know, our lifespan hasn't grown in a decade on average, um, certainly can help impact patient care in those ways. For, for, a, uh, for a nurse, what we provide is flexibility as a currency. They have opportunity to engage with work um, at a cadence um, and in a pattern that works best for them. This is something that hasn't been available before and will certainly continue to drive ample amount of discussions, not only about how they, you know, how they operate as a workforce, but how, the, how we think about work as an industry in the future. And, and then for a, a scheduling resource, a manager who has these needs in the building, we, we have an opportunity to provide them transparently information that they have never had to make decisions that they have consistently been held accountable for um, financially and operationally over the last several decades, uh, we can make those decisions better looking forward. Um, I, I think in that respect, we truly, truly are just scratching the surface of what, of what a digital tool set can provide um, the space and for each of us as, as we think about the, the future of our care. Now, as we're thinking about here the uh, the future, I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. So let's say, you know, I was to put you into a time machine and I brought you back in time, you know, maybe to that moment where you are now transitioning into the world of tech eh, out of uh, doing your entertainment uh, stint. And you had the opportunity of having a chat with your younger self, that younger Curtis, and being able to give that younger Curtis one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? It's a great, it's a great question, Alejandro. I think, I think as far as giving my former self advice, um, there wouldn't necessarily be one thing, but there would be a short list of things that I would probably um, share. Some of them would be corrective and most of them would be enabling and just to help fuel confidence uh, of the decision making that that I went through, um, when you can't do what you've always done, then you only do what matters. Um, part of running a startup is about having a painfully acute sense of focus on the brightest burning fire, and and what happens is time is your most valuable resource. And it is a currency of which you don't get to spend it twice, despite the nature of the question. And so you want to be acute in, in focusing on what matters. And you want to be litigious in the way in which you hold yourself accountable uh, and discuss what, what should be on that list. Um, the next thing I would say is, in contrast to that, you can always recover from being wrong. You can't always recover from being slow. Um, markets move fast. Technology moves incredibly fast. And I think the, the valuable piece of this for me is that you, you, the worst thing that's going to happen if you make a, a bad decision is you're a bad example. Um, you, you don't always get the chance to do things twice. And so don't sit still. Um, and when you have simply enough data to act, don't don't double think it. Um, act and move. Um, as you grow a team through a massive uh, ramp in scale, uh, I would say um, hire for now, not for later. 
Um, you always want to be building a team that can add impact and value right now. And you always want to manage performance in such a way that uh, you are garnering people who will push you to be a better version of yourself. That that can that can trip a bunch of vulnerability triggers for for founders and for for those who build businesses. But um, I love I love the idea of having a team that is just hungry to pers- pursue the future. Um, maybe the last note here is that. Uh, getting rid of any part of the process that you can uh, that doesn't help is a material way to continue to increase value and do more with less. Um, Oftentimes, if you find yourself uh, having not deleted um, too much, uh, you probably haven't gone far enough. And so when you go to make changes or perfect a process, um, cut away more fat than you than you think you're going to need. Uh, And if you have to put things back or have to add things back to the process, then you certainly know you've cut away enough. So for the people that are listening, Curtis, that uh, are inspired and that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Absolutely. So two two ways. LinkedIn is a a great tool today. And um, I I am as active as I can be on, on LinkedIn today. Uh, and then as well, um, I'm on Twitter or uh, what is now X, formerly Twitter, under the handle uh, at Curtis Nursa. Amazing. Uh, both, both would be great. Amazing. Well, hey, Curtis, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Uh, Alejandro, the pleasure's mine. Uh, do what you can to stay out of trouble. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.